0: wildlife and its habitat cannot speak, so we must, and we will.
1: You're listening to the Conservation Federation of Missouri podcast. Here's Executive Director Brandon Butler.
0: Welcome to Conservation Federation. I'm your host, Brandon Butler. And to begin with, I'll address the fact that I am moving on from the Conservation Federation of Missouri. I've been blessed with an opportunity to join Raceline Alternative Energy. And the word is sort of seeped out, so I thought I would... Quickly bring that up in the podcast and let everybody know that I'll be winding down my role as host of this podcast, but hopefully someone will step in soon and take over and continue the great content that we've been producing. With that, today I want to introduce my two guests. I'm here with Zach Coy, who is the president of Pure Air Wildlife Management Co-op up here in North Missouri, and he's also about to become a, a colleague of mine at Raceline Alternative Energy. And also joining us is Frank Oberly, and we're at frank's Frank's beautiful Prairie. Frank is one of the foremost artists I've ever met in my life A renowned photographer, incredible woodworker, but his masterpiece is the Prairie that he's put together here in Adair County. He's also an example to me of just how certain people come into your life and you never understand what those relationships might entail, but the blessings that come from certain people are almost unfathomable. And knowing Frank Oberle has truly changed my life. So I'm very, very blessed to have Frank in my life and excited for you all to hear some of his incredible knowledge about North Missouri and wildlife management. So Frank, why is North Missouri so special?
1: There's so little of it left in North America. There's a uh, unique geological phenomenon that has, um, been with us for a number of years, and that is that we're on the western slope of the Grand Divide, and along that geographical area, which is the western side of Highway 63, and there was an upheaval some time ago that pushed up the soil and made it kind of a, like an Ozark landscape. There's lots of coal underneath this landscape. Missouri at one time was in the top three coal-producing states in the nation. But along that corridor, the land is a little bit too steep to plow, lots of open prairie, lots of woods, and a combination of um, good soils and good water. And with that we have habitat worthy of supporting a whole myriad of different species of wildlife. And um, I guess that's what drew me here was that the amount of native prairie that's left in this area. And I was working on two books for the nature conservancy. I'd lived in St. Charles. I was always heading North into Iowa and, to Minnesota and Dakotas come through here and seen this incredible prairie. And so one day I just decided to put an ad in the paper trying to locate some of it. Purchased it for a weekend place and wound up moving here, and uh, we don't have any regrets. <laughs> well, in the last
0: episode, we were down in Shannon County talking to Alex Rutledge, who was born and raised there, has never lived anywhere else. He went on and on about his love of the Ozarks and and that part of the state. And I thought we need to give North Missouri some credit as well because Missouri itself never ceases to amaze me. I haven't been to a county yet that I haven't found to be incredibly beautiful, offering diverse and unique opportunities to be outdoors and experience natural wonders. Certainly the case up here in North Missouri. And I'm excited to have Zach talk about his lifelong love affair with this part of the state, being a lifelong native of this county.
2: Yeah, Brandon, I was uh, born and raised in Kirksville, about 17 miles to the east of here, and my family's blessed to have a 400-acre farm just down the road from Frank. Me and my brother and all my cousins, we've grown up on that farm, tromped every square inch of it, and a lot of the neighboring landowners let us do that as well. But... As I got older, I realized really in the past 10 years, the amount of remnant prairie that is in this stretch of Highway 149 that runs through the properties, bountiful deer and turkey, tons of turkey hunting opportunities around, and we've actually started to see a comeback of the quail
1: as well. Yeah, Frank, you've got a few coveys of quail here on the farm, don't you? We were, I think it was in 2008, we lost all of our quail, and it wasn't until Two years ago did we start seeing coveys of quail come back, but we're still not at the level when we first purchased the farm, though.
0: Well, I want to go back a little bit. You said you were in St. Charles. Before that, you were a Vietnam soldier, bravely served our country. Like many Vietnam soldiers, didn't have it very easy over there. And you've told me before about how this area and this prairie was very settling for your soul. And and that's really what drew you out here was the peace and, and tranquility that you are able to find here on the prairie. Can you talk a little bit about that, how this place is spiritual for you?
1: Yeah, it's it's a difficult topic. I was a machine gunner on a helicopter for two years. Only one's imagination can probably understand what myself and other people over there kind of went through and only to come home to be ostracized and deemed unworthy of, um, I'd say, assimilation into society because, you know, we were pigeonholed as druggies and mental misfits. And yes, there... There are times in which um, I do have th- difficulty with some mm, stress disorders, especially when I think about some of my um, near-death experiences. We'll just leave it that. But coming here, it seems like um, I find a genetic sort of like therapy and something to do with nature. I don't know what it is, but I do know that my mother's family were French Indian, and I grew up with a lot of Indian culture from my mom's side. And they were certainly ones who could sit still in nature. And at, when I was young, and I just never understood it, but now I do. But I think prairie is God's Clinic for a whole host of, of challenges we have as a society that has a fast pace, lots of concrete, lots of drywall, and lots of formica, and uh, all of which is inanimate objects lacking life. So here I can see, feel, touch, and almost become one with who I am in this celestial ball moving about 17,000 miles an hour. All of us that spend time outdoors can relate
0: to what you're saying, maybe not on as deep of, of, of a level as, as you've experienced due to the experiences of your life, but I think we all understand what you're saying. I've just never really met anybody that's embraced it as much as you have and has spent so much time and effort and energy and money giving back. You give back so much to the landscape. And coming up here to this prairie the very first time I was here, you just feel something special. When you can look out across that swaying grass and through the broken savannas and and even down into your agricultural areas where the deer and turkey will congregate at dawn and dusk, it's a very special place. But you didn't find it that way. When you got here, it was it was a landscape that had been abused, and you went to work restoring it to a scale that I don't think most people can understand without seeing how meticulous this place is and and the beauty of it. And you created a business out of it. Pure Air Natives is a a longtime supporter of the Conservation Federation, a great partner for us in in so many ways. Can you talk a little bit about how you found this place and, and the process you went through to
1: to get it to where it is today? Well, firstly, I, um, when I came back from Vietnam, I just was having a great deal of difficulty finding a job as a machine gunner. I just didn't find any openings anywhere. So <laughs> um, the best job I could get was folding cardboard boxes in a cardboard box factory on Page in St. Louis. So I decided to go to school. And I was a horrible, horrible student that didn't apply myself in high school. I was always thinking if I had any fish on the trot line on the Missouri River or any rabbits in my box trap because I had people to buy them. And, but once I come back from Vietnam, I realized I had a thirst for learning and uh, so I went to junior college and did okay there. And then I transferred to Lindenwood and met some inspirational people that took a special amount of time with me in trying to mold me to where I could receive knowledge, thought management and whatever it is. And But I failed a math class, and the only cl- – well, one of the only classes I, I failed – and so I decided to take a quick course in photography to make up for that failed math class. And after three weeks, it was one of those intense courses. I thought, well, I'll take this here photography class, and I'll make up for those three lost credits. Well, what I focused on is went to my mother's farm in St. Louis County, which has been in our family since 1794, with even the same last name. And I spent three weeks there photographing. And what what I remember photographing was the, the coonskin still on the side of uh, the smokehouse had been there probably for who knows how long and took pictures of that and the well that we drank out of. And I, I guess when I showed this to my instructor, he was moved and, He said, hey, Frank, how would you like to go to work for a newspaper? And I said, sure, Lou, three weeks in one of your classes, and I'm ready to go to work for a newspaper. And he says, no, they need people to process the film, maybe clean the floors, and maybe an assignment now and then. Well, I did that, and um, I took two internships with some of the local papers, and when I graduated from college, I was hired as a chief photographer for the St. Charles Banner News and um, kind of changed the way I seen things. I prospered there. I was sort of found my musical instrument, so to speak, which was photography. And of course, after four years there, I went to New York and started to work for a bunch of national magazines and including life magazine and many others and so that's my been kind of my journey and uh, I found that um photojournalism was um it was a an interesting discipline but I found that doing drug stories on drug lords in California Troubled kids in Arizona, and some of these feature assignments that I, I was really longing to to do more like natural history assignments, and I tried to wean myself away from the the spotlight where I made good money and and all of that, to where I could spend more time in nature, and that's how I really came here. Is that? I'd left St. Louis on, I was working on a couple of book projects. Every time I came through Adair County, it just stood out like a, um, a gemstone that was winking at me. It's like, wow, look at all of these The, I mean, once you get into Iowa, it was like an immediate dead zone. There was none of the wildflowers whatsoever that you seen in Missouri. Their roadsides were manicured like golf courses. And so I was working on two books on prairies, and so I felt like uh, I was going to put an ad in the paper, and local paper here for land, and the very next day, this, this one here was up for sale. I had just cajillions of offers with that ad, but for somehow, this place stood out. I started tearing hay bales apart, and I could see all these prairie species in there it was really grubbed out. It wouldn't even burn the first couple of years. I think we went through like 55 gallons of diesel fuel and gasoline only burned about 12 acres because it was just so, but I knew there was potential here. We took the cattle off and I got into dozerscaping, so to speak, fixing some of the um, the ditches that had eroded throughout the years and taking fence rows out and I knew it was here. I mean, it was just a a patience discipline and collecting seed from one place to the other and moving it. And um after I finished it was four books with the Nature Conservancy, um I was working on another one, but unfortunately the um the fellow that I was working with, John Mattson, everybody knows him, he's the one that wrote Where the Sky Began. He passed away and i was working on this book with him and i was out in montana or wyoming and montana border and i was halfway through with this book project it was called the the great plains a prairie in transition and i just didn't want to go into montana i was heading for the missouri breaks region and i went about 10 miles into montana and i stopped turned around came back and said i don't i don't want to do this book anymore so then I got about 10 miles into Wyoming, and I said, no, I got to. Um, so I, I drove back up into Montana again, 10 miles in there. I says, no, I can't do it. So I headed home, and I remember Judy was in our garden. She was holding the weeds out of some of the beans and that. And she goes, what are you doing home? I said, babe, I I just want to be here. And she goes, I could tell. You, I could tell by your photos they they had been more like – Um, They they lacked the creativity that you had before. And she goes, we'll find something to do. And I thought, well, you know, everybody's been asking me about sharing some of the seeds here. So because it was so rare with having North Missouri ecotype seeds. And that's how um, and of course, just right up the road is a little town called Pure Air. And I thought, you know, we'll just call it Pure Air Native Seed Company. And um, that's how I um, got that business going. And it seemed like, like any wildlife restoration project, there's a recipe. And if you deviate from it, you won't have the success. And I was always trying to figure out what that special little idiosyncrasy or personality with each plant had. And I tried to impart that to people who wanted to buy the seed. Is that I had to think like nature. You can't plant this stuff in the springtime and expect it to grow because those seeds are little tomes of, of information that is so remarkable that if you were to like copy all the genetic characteristics, it would be, it would be one book after the other. But one thing for sure is that those seeds are professional. They have been around for thousands of years, and many of them need to lay on the ground for 60 or 70 days through the winter. And if you try to plant them in the spring, they become fodder for insects. They, They just won't survive. So that was the key for me is to realize, to study that plant, to study how it germinates, and... We found out like compass plant germinates at 34 degree temperature in the spring after it's been stratified, laying on the ground for a couple of months. So I I think if there was anything that is unique with me being here is trying to be observant.
0: Zach, long before I ever visited this area, I knew about it. It's not a secret to any deer hunter across really the Midwest or maybe the country that we're in one of the premier deer hunting spots in, in America. A lot of people hear more about Iowa, but we're right on the Iowa border. We have uh, more liberal tags, more ability for people to come in and hunt. To me, it's one of the great deer hunting destinations out there for people. Out of to to visit. Of course, people who live here work very hard to make sure the opportunities continue into the future. But it's not just deer hunting. You know, what is it about this area that's so special for wildlife and sportsmen?
2: I would say the um, the ability to go out on any ridge and hear a turkey gobble in the spring. any Anywhere in the Dare County, you're going to hear a turkey gobble. Landowners are usually pretty open to let you go in and chase turkey and deer. The overall habitat in this part of the state is a lot better than if you go west or even east. We're just kind of in a special corridor, and if you look at a map, Highway 149 corridor is the last sizable piece of woodland as you travel further west.
0: It is beautiful how scattered the woodlots are up here. It it almost reminds me a little bit of where I grew up in northern Indiana, except that this is so much more beautiful because it's a much more natural, kind of rolling landscape mixed in with with prairie and, and other habitats, the river bottoms and such. Where I grew up, it was flat as a pancake, all aglands five acres of woods here a, a 20 acre woodlot was a huge woodlot and everything was connected by fence rows and you were really hunting travel patterns here it's almost like a mixture of ozark hills and that kind of agriculture landscape because it's not quite as steep as you would find in the ozarks but there are still patterns to hunting these fence rows and the way that they travel from from woodlot to woodlot I, I'm just so intrigued by it, and I myself came up and and shot a turkey here at Frank's, and I know exactly what you were saying. There was turkeys gobbling in every direction, but at one time there were no turkeys here, and that was the the work of conservationists that came before us. Do you personally remember kind of the evolution of the turkey hunting? or I
2: I don't. I know when I was a young boy going out with my dad, we had no issue setting up on 8 to 10 birds a morning on our 400-acre family farm and it kind of went through an evolution in the past 10 years that you would go out and you would have to talk to the uncles because there was only two birds gobbling, and you kind of had to decide who was going to hunt. But then the last three years, it's picked up to the point where everybody can hunt the farm. There's plenty of turkeys to chase, and Frank can probably talk a little bit more about the wild turkey and its tie to this area. It's a little bit, I was too young to remember Shag's work whenever that happened, but I know it had to do with the birds being reintroduced over around Thousand Hills.
0: To hear you say that though, that makes me hopeful because I think we live in an era right now where a lot of young people, and you're a fairly young guy, they don't remember what it was like. I'm in that same generation with you where we've always been blessed to have game resources available to us. Uh, Frank, you can probably tell us a little bit more about the days when you didn't see 131 deer feeding in a cornfield or there weren't turkeys on every ridge and, and some of the work that had to go into giving us these opportunities that we have today. Well, my
1: grandfather on my mother's side, Peter Tebow, he was born, I think, in around, I'm going to say 1870, and I think he died around 1950, never seen a deer are a turkey in his entire life, nor a beaver. And he lived right on the river. Their land was deeded to the river's edge on the Missouri River. And there's an individual that lives here in Adair County, and I think he would be a super candidate while he's still got his faculties, is to talk about Adair County. And that's Leslie Ellsworth. Leslie is in his 90s. And He went to Pure Air Baptist Church with me when we were going there. And one of the things that fascinated me the most is that Leslie has spent his entire career as a trapper. And he was saying in the 50s, if you saw a set of coon tracks, you never told nobody compared to today. And he said he don't know for sure, but He thinks 1957 might have been the first year they saw a deer here in Adair County. Do you remember that
0: packet of information that Rudy passed out at his meeting we had last year?
1: The Chillicothe? Yeah.
0: There's an article in there in the beginning of that packet of information that talks about the early days of the Grand River watershed and when settlers started coming into this area in the 1820s. It's pretty fascinating. The, The first guy that came in brought his family and built a cabin and such. The second noted settler lived inside a tree. Was, I think it was a sycamore tree, big enough to where it was hollow, and that's what he lived in, and he just hunted. He was a market hunter. And he talked about like it was a bad day if he didn't get three bears. So that's what the wildlife was like in
1: this area. There before. were so many elk that they would run them in the thickets, and the, the elk would get in those thickets with their antlers sort of tangled with the willows in that, and they would just go in there and lasso them. And then they said they were gone by 1850. So people came in in the 1820s and wiped it out by the 1850s. Without without regulations. Without, and I think to validate where you're going with this, is that how could in just 30 years we take, um let's just say, elk, bison, bear, Mountain lions too. Remember they were talking about it would, it would be no problem to go out in a single day and, and to get a lion. And here we are that from 1870 to eight to, to 1950, my grandfather never saw any of those. And his family were fur trappers along the river. And Leslie was saying that it wasn't until the fifties until they saw the first deer here. Last night, I counted 131 deer in the bottom. So how did we get from one deer in the 50s to 130 deer on just our farm last night? So it really shows the benefits of how we manage our resource. And precisely what I'm excited about in this podcast is that I'm with Zach Coy, who is a young man all of about, what, 23? 26. 26, and he's got this. But he's U- big as an ox. He could easily look like he's 36. <laughs>
0: Looks like he should have
1: been on the football field yesterday. I was looking at yeah, him. He makes I, you look small. <laughs> and, and, and so anyway, I'm, I'm so excited that these young guys, neighbors, that um, are they've got this co-op going. And their whole goal is to add value to our landscape by improving the habitat. And, yeah, they love to hunt, but I I, I truly believe they love being outside just as much as they like being hunters. I think the hunt is, is only part of the journey. And uh, you can speak to it, Zach, but you guys have helped me burn – 350 acres here for the last couple of years, which I'm not sure I'd be able to do now because I, I do have some health issues. But to think that our youth is picking this up, and uh, I think you guys burned 3,000 acres plus last year for landowners, and every one of the, we'll, we'll say, landowners that you burnt for is seeing positive results. Look, we're fortunate to
0: live in a state where we have sound science directing our Department of Conservation. We've talked over and over on this podcast about the way that MDC operates being unique from most states, where we don't have political control or or legislative agendas really dictating the science that determines regulations that impact wildlife and wildlife habitat. But at the end of the day, it comes down to citizen buy-in it comes down to what what you're doing on that 93 or 94% of the state that is in private ownership and what changed from you know 1950 to today a lot of mentality changed a lot of a lot of individuals coming together to say okay if we're going to have resources into the future then we're going to have to change the way we personally use those resources and how we take them And that's where the regulation comes in. And as you said, we're seeing that evolution continue in the next generation and the next generation. And the way things were done during your grandfather's era were different than your era, which are different than Zach's era. But I think one thing that is really cool is when citizens come together and work within those regulations to even improve upon it. And that's exactly what Zach is doing with the Pure Air Wildlife Management Co-op. And I think it's really special that nobody wants government, at least nobody that I hang out with, wants government infringing on all of their decision makings. We have to have parameters. We have to have kind of the the inside and outside saying, this is the regulation, you can operate within that. These guys are taking it one step further and saying, how can we combine my private land and your private land and Frank's private land and create our own sense of community and and manage our conservation and wildlife resources collectively together. So what has led you to that, Zach, and and how has it been so successful?
2: As far as leading me to this, um, it would have been in the fall of 2015. We'd had a huge EHD outbreak here in North Missouri, and my brother and I were sitting in a tree stand, and we were actually filming at the time for Grant Woods, and we were lucky to see two to three deer. And we knew something had to be done. We, our deer numbers were low. Our age class was awful. Our private land conservationist, John Murphy, at the time, he put me in contact with Alex Foster. He's a cooperative manager with Quality Deer Management Association. Alex came up and he met with us at our shop just down the road. And that's when Pure, Pure Air Wildlife Management Cooperative was born. So that would have been in 2015. And we started off with about 600 acres and 15 landowners, if I remember right. As of right now, we're sitting at close to 3,600 acres and 22 landowners, and we've got huge gaps in our map still to fill. We set up parameters on kind of where the boundary would be for the co-op, and we've just grown from there. And it's crazy. Every spring we have new people that come to us and, hey, we want to burn. Hey, we need help with TSI. Hey, we want some food plots put in. Can you guys help us with that? And it's awesome because we're helping older generations, you know, step back and realize that they've got great native resources on their property and it's all being brought out with fire. We burnt close to 3,000 acres last year just in this 149 corridor and it didn't take very much time to do it and we had a great time doing it.
0: Talk about what it entails to do a burn, safety and and how how you would recommend somebody else getting into that kind
2: of land management practice? I would, I would take safety as the number one. I mean, you have to know what you're doing before you go out and strike a match. The safety of you and your neighbors and your crew is foremost. For sure, contact your neighbors and your fire department in the county. That is the biggest, the biggest problem we usually run into are people who will light a fire in the next county, and then we've got the fire department showing up to our fire because someone called in. So call your county dispatch, let them know you're gonna be burning, let your neighbors know you're gonna be burning. And it's not as simple as just going out and throwing a match on the ground and, hey, I burnt this grass field, next year I'm gonna have big blue stem, switchgrass, Indian grass. There's different times of the year you wanna burn, and I'm not gonna really get into that right now because it's very lengthy, but do your research, know what you're trying to achieve before you start the fire. Different times of the year are better for woodlands as they are for grasslands. So, have your fire breaks be prepared the fall before. I'd say that's the number one. I mean, Frank's fire breaks are ready to go as soon as the snow melts and we've got a good day. We're going to be ready to go here, and a lot of the co-op members in the area are going to be the same story. We're going to be ready to light on them
0: too. Another Department of Conservation puts on some burning clinics. I assume. Uh- Some of the other conservation organizations that we partner with do as well. Are you aware of any education people are able
2: to find on their own? Yeah, our PLC in Adair in Sullivan County, Nathan Hubbard with the Missouri Department of Conservation, he should be able to get you in contact. I'm sure he'll put a class or two on this spring, and that's something that I highly recommend. Now, just because you go to one of these classes doesn't mean that you're fully prepared to go out and start a fire. I would definitely get a hold of someone with some experience to come out and help you that first or two or three times.
0: Yeah, and PLC stands for Private Lands Conservationist. That's really a great point. That's a good place to start. Again, we're blessed to have the resources in Missouri, to have a conservation department that can man an entire division on private lands conservation. And those people exist to help you manage your land better. And if you're a landowner who cares about your habitat and you have not consulted with a private lands conservationist, you're missing a great opportunity to do so. There's there's no cost to you. And in fact, there's actually opportunities for you to earn some money back through your cost share program. I would reach out to your private lands conservationist through the department and see if there's any opportunities to improve the habitat with cost share on your property. And I assume you've you've done that.
2: Absolutely, yeah. A lot of um, a lot of the landowners within our co-op have received cost share for some of their projects, and quite a few of them get paid each year to burn. A lot of them do TSI timber stand improvements each year on different units of their property, and they're actually getting paid for that as well. So don't do the work for free because they will definitely get you some funding for the habitat work.
0: So the habitat work is in, incredibly important and a big part of what you're doing as a co-op member for you, Zach, president of the co-op. But I like the aspect that it also builds a, a sense of community. It really brings people together and creates kind of a shared compassion for the landscape and for the wildlife. I assume you're not running into too many problem people that are in your co-op, right? That these people understand what everyone's trying to accomplish collectively, And working together towards those goals. One problem that we face across the state, this isn't a new topic by any means, but it's one that we continue to try to push forward Uh, in the Capitol. We're working on legislation to help curb poaching. It doesn't matter if I'm in the Ozarks or Adair County or Kansas City or St. Louis. People always want to tell me their personal horror stories Of poaching, and why don't we do more? Why, why aren't the penalties greater? Why aren't people being punished in a a more severe way for poaching? There's a lot of reasons for that. One, um, we forget sometimes that when when these poachers go before a judge, that judge might have seen a murder or a rapist, and then a deer comes across their their table, and it could be a city person that just doesn't understand. The, the real value of wildlife. So we're trying to make sure that we show the economic impact that poaching has on, on portions of our state. But it's really personal for landowners. It's really personal for these people that are out burning and doing habitat improvement and maybe even supplemental feeding and food plot plantings. And you put all this time and effort into it and someone drives up in a truck and shoots a deer off your land from the road. It's pretty heart-wrenching. Well, most of these
1: young guys that are doing what I'd say habitat restoration here in this 149 corridor, my neighbor to the north of me here, Buddy Clingsmith, took his cattle off uh, in order to have the tall grass prairie biome that supports the deer. I took the cattle off. And Sean Klinksmith and Donnie Waybell took their cattle off. So there's an economic sacrifice to creating these. And, and Cali has a thousand acres. He took his cattle off. So the the issue is that these individuals have chosen to create wildlife habitats, and so doing you're going to favor wildlife that means something special to you. And the more individuals in an area who have shared interest, the greater the opportunities are to have quality hunts and quality time outside. And it didn't come um, haphazardly. It, it, it's it been a long drawn out commitment and it seems like when there are a few people that feel they have a right and it could be a um, an ill way of thinking <laughs> that they're going to come and shoot one of your deer or several of your deer that you've been trying to um, get to quality. And, you know, this winter, I've already had two poaching cases close to me. Um There's a guy that's been down on the creek there. He was poaching beaver and uh, all the other things. And so it's not just poaching of turkey and deer. There are other resources. And hopefully, this guy who did the poaching of the The beaver and these other things, um, hopefully he'll be given a restitution equal to what his offense was. But I've had here on this farm here, I can't tell you how many poaching cases I've had. And um, they've all been, it just seems um, insidious uh, fines, um, you could probably throw out a pack of cigarettes and get an equal fine. But the issue I have with poaching is the dangers associated with it too.
0: There are a lot of dangers associated with it. When people pull up on the side of a road and shoot into land that they don't understand what could be on the other side of the hill, people that have, you know, snuck in at night with a spotlight, they can only see so far and they shoot. They don't know what's beyond the scope of that light. There's all kinds of dangers with it. And at the end of the day, it's just thievery. It's stealing. It's stealing resources from that landowner. But again, just because a deer is on that landowner's property doesn't make it that landowner's deer. That deer belongs to the people of Missouri. So when when you take a deer or a turkey or a beaver or any other critter, you're stealing from all of us. And we talked earlier about how the resources went from so so plentiful that you could go out and shoot three bears in a day in 1820 to basically having a, a desert wildlife area in 30 years. And if it wasn't for regulations and it wasn't for everybody playing by the rules, that could happen again. That could happen again real quick.
1: So what is um, some of the current thinking on poaching? Is it do we use our neighboring states as examples how to curtail that? And if so, how do they achieve where where they're at?
0: Legislation doesn't happen quick. That's something that I've learned in the five years I've spent in the Capitol building, that it takes a while to get a bill over the finish line. You never know what's going to stand in the way. It could be one individual, which is pretty much the case we had with the poaching bill last year. Last year, we had a poaching bill that passed the House by a large margin, and it would create a restitution scale much greater than what we have now. Is it perfect? I don't think so. But perfect is hard to come by in the way of politics. And this would institute a a significant fine for the poaching of deer, turkey, elk, bear, or paddlefish. And people say, well, what about squirrels and what about beavers and what about rabbits? It's just not as common. You're just not seeing as many people being turned in for poaching squirrels as you are a trophy buck. So hopefully, as the poaching bill evolves, more of those critters will be covered by it. But in the meantime, if we could get this bill refiled this year, which it has been in the House already, and Senator Schatz filed it in the Senate last year, and Senator Schatz is now the President Pro Tem of the Senate. So since he's really uh, running the Senate at this time, he's not filing legislation. So we're looking for a new sponsor in, in the Senate, and we have someone identified that I think, I think we're gonna be able to talk him into carrying the bill. But since it passed the House so overwhelmingly last year, we think there's a good chance it'll pass the Senate this year because the one senator who was very determined not to see it pass is no longer in the Senate. He's, he has termed out. So the roadblock to passage has been removed, and we think we can get this in. And And how anybody wouldn't think this is a good thing for the state of Missouri, for all residents, whether it's somebody in St. Louis that likes to see deer in fields when they drive down i seventy to the guy who spends $10,000 a year planting food plots and doing habitat work. It uh, it certainly is something that needs to be done, and we're working hard at the Federation to address it. And the department has done a lot of due diligence in the numbers that we use, and most of the legislators that I've talked to are on board. We do have uh, a whole new slew. I, I want to say about 70 new legislators this year, I believe. Term limits you know, take a lot of people out, and we've turned over a lot. So many of the people that voted for it last year are no longer, no longer in the building. And, uh, we'll have to start re-educating or, or, yeah, re-educating the body, the mass and individually speaking to these new legislators. So people talk a lot about term limits in the sense of, you know, getting people out of office that have, uh, you know, been there and career politicians and this and that. I've learned a lot about that. You know, that's really a double-edged sword. Um, there are certain people that you can't wait to see go. But you also lose a lot of institutional knowledge when somebody's been in the legislature for six, seven years. They've really started to figure it out, and then in their eighth year they got to go. So it's a it's an interesting process that has both its good and its bad
1: bad aspects. Well, I see that when you have these young men and their wives supporting them, you know, to do this habitat enhancement and the sacrifices they have, one of the rewards is the finished product. And the finished product in the case of doing this habitat enhancement is either the turkey, either the deer, or the quail, whatever it is. And so you have people that claim to be hunters when they are driving on the roads, and they're so far from the truth. You know, they're poachers. And I, I, I believe a positive message to send to these poachers is that you're stealing. And not only are you stealing, you're you're terrorizing. I, I can attest that when I know people are up there shooting towards the house here, it's just not, maybe they missed this time, but in Iowa, two weeks ago, a guy shot and shot a lady in the back of a neck poaching a deer. So, in Missouri especially, because we shoot high-powered rifles, we're not shooting shotguns, we're with slugs, our bullets go a long distance, so... I believe that we'll probably wind up running a bus if it goes to legislation for hearing. And that bus ride will take us all down to Jeff City to be in that hearing because we have been, um I, I guess you could say we've been harassed by these guys who feel like, give me the ticket, let me be on my way, and I'll, I'll be back next year. And I'll do the same thing because it's cheaper than leasing.
2: And then another thing I wanted to mention on the benefits of landowner-led co-ops. I said earlier I've got 22 landowners within our co-op up this 149 corridor. And since we've started our co-op, we've killed a lot of really nice deer in the area. And since then, we've noticed an influx of traffic up and down this road. So just to send it out loud and clear, there's 22 contacts in my phone. If I hear a shot off the road from a vehicle... I can have let 22 landowners within my general area, within a five-mile radius, know, hey, black truck just shot off the road this time. I've got 22 guys with eyes out their windows or toward a road watching for these, this black truck. That's a huge benefit.
0: Hopefully a couple of those contacts are sheriff's deputies Absolutely. and conservation agents. Absolutely. And I made the mistake one time a little, little over a decade ago when I was still a little bit more filled with piss and vinegar to to uh to turn a guy in for poaching. And then I wrote a story about it, <laughs> like admitting that I did it, which I was proud to write that story, but it created some problems in the neighborhood. But, you know, I, I I was hunting a piece of property, and this was back in Indiana. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful piece of property. And Indiana is a one-buck state. And after this guy had shot his third buck that season, and I had talked to the landowner after he shot the first one, the landowner was about a, a 90 year old farmer who just hated deer, just wanted them gone, you know. So he was encouraged by this guy shooting every deer that he could. And, um, I finally turned him in and, and it, it caused some problems. So if you're, if you're in that situation, you know, having that network of people is great, but you can also turn people in anonymously. I think that's very important for people to understand. Like you can call Operation Game Thief and the phone number is on It's on the MDC website, it's on the CFM website. I can't remember if it's even on your – it might be on your license.
2: Yeah, it's on the back of the tags, and I think it's even on yeah. the hunt kind of app. That you so have. you
0: you call in anonymously. You do not have to give your name. You do not have to give any personal information about yourself to make a tip to the conservation department or conservation agent's about poaching that's going on in your area, so so be smarter than me. <laughs> don't don't stand out in the road and say, "Hey, I'm the guy that did it," unless you, <laughs> you want some neighborhood problems. But you can you can easily make a tip, and and often those result in, in people being caught and prosecuted.
1: I want to add to that. This is this process of having science um, and apply it to conservation. Means that we're still getting better at helping our planet become better through science. And I believe we can heal a lot of past bad judgments, you know, much like the Dust Bowl was man made. And I think that with the monarch butterfly being sort of a barometer of the health of our our environment is that we need to make changes and the changes I believe are going to be made by people that been gifted with different ways of looking at what we need to do to change. And um, I think the more that we see what's happening to our planet and knowing that we have to change something, I see a big place for prairie restoration in that change. I see a big change in how we um, view wildlife as a part of that. So I think it's sort of like art. You know, art is cannot exist without artist, and artists have a hard time existing without art appreciators. I think we're coming to the point in our society to know that we need a good, solid conservation ideology that we can follow. And I think we're we're learning a lot in what these young men are doing up here, and we're we're bringing back not just you know um, the the deer and the turkey, but we're bringing back a lot of essential things. And that is, um, there are certain insects that only feed off of certain plants, but there are certain birds that only eat certain insects. (laughs) And so it's, it's been to me, it's been, um, an exciting, um, you know, an exciting observation to watch and to see this sort of what I'd say is, um, we're all on this journey, and um, prairie is something that you can't really define. You have to stand in it.
0: You know, we often hear the the sky is falling from the old the old guard. I I couldn't disagree anymore. I'm right, excited. Yes, yes. I'm excited about the future. I I think there is a a vein of conservation and environmental concern that that has grown in younger mm-hmm. generations. I think climate change and, and the issues that are coming from climate change, flooding, catastrophic weather events, that's something that this generation has grown up with and they're aware of it. So there's, there's really no debate as to whether the validity of, of this is real or not. And, you know, I, I, I turn, uh, 40 years old in two days. <laughs> so I will, uh, I'll say I'm at about half time in life right now. And I can, I can, I'm old enough now to look back and say things have improved. Things have improved in my life. And I can't wait to see what the improvement looks like in the second half of my life because I think it's going to be profound. I think we're moving towards, as you say, a better planet. And I think more people are becoming conscious and aware of the fact that, that we are all on this journey together. And that we all have to pull our weight and and try to be more environmentally conscious. Now, that doesn't mean we have to stifle capitalism or, or roll back our opportunities to manufacture and produce in this country. We just have to do it in a more sustainable way. We're looking for more sustainable practices in agriculture. We're looking for more sustainable practices in manufacturing. We have some of the greatest minds on the planet in this country. And, and we should, as we have so many times before, we should lead the way. Mm-hmm. And, and I see it in people, you know, having taught at the University of Missouri in the School of Natural Resources, the brains that are, that are coming out of that school, which is just one school out of a thousand schools where students are studying natural resources and, and looking for ways to, to make the planet more sustainable. I'm excited about
1: it. I'm excited about the future we can repair and even improve on such a wide scale of um, things that have taken place. Who would have ever thought, um, we'll, we'll, we'll just say 40 years ago, that the Eagle would have returned with such incredible numbers. There's not too many days that go by here on the farm, I don't see an eagle. And that's all year long. I saw one on my drive up. A juvenile
0: flying straight straight up the highway, looking for roadkill.
1: And, and I forget what the number was in the 80s, what the population of eagles. And I spent almost 10 years of my life photographing eagles. And I just can't believe the the number of eagles. And it wasn't that... We had a problem with eagles. We had a problem with the eagles' habitat.
0: Tell the story about the turkey restoration up here in North Missouri that Zach alluded to a little bit ago.
1: Boy, is that just uh, one of the most fascinating and intriguing studies in conservation. Most change of anything in the world usually begins with one mind, one mind, and then it's two minds, then three minds. And, and those three, four, five grow into unison. And here in Adair County, we had, I think, uh, Shag Grossneckel, and there was another gentleman, I'm trying to think of his last name. But this Western slope of the Grand Divide. The Grand Divide goes from Columbia all the way to Des Moines. It's everything from the western part of 63 drains into the Missouri River. Everything on the east side of Highway 63 drains in the Mississippi. And like I said, it's this geological upheaving that makes it look like a lot like the Ozarks. And we have a lot of the same species that exist here that is down there. However, Shag Grossnickel was a guy that wanted to get some turkeys going up here because historically this area was abundant in turkeys. And it was just the fact is that the early settlers liked to eat them too. No regulations, just you know, so it took a while and it took what I call perseverance for these individuals to persuade and to appeal to the reasoning of MDC to trap turkeys out of you were calling Shannon County and Carter and Iron County to bring some of them birds up here. Well, they were Ozarkian birds and they they live in an area that is abundant in trees and rocks. And, um, most people don't realize that know me that I hunted turkeys in 1962 and 63. The second and third year of, um, I had a, boy, I had a, an aunt that, um, wanted me and my cousin to have a turkey hunting experience. They owned some land in Glover, Missouri up on top of this mountain and it was nothing but rocks and trees and lizards. And, she lived at her, her dad lived in Piedmont and they were way back in the woods and she taught us how to call turkeys up using, well, her dad used a, a turkey bone, but anyway, she taught us how to use an ink pen. Her husband, which is my uncle, um, he took us down on Friday, left on Sunday and my aunt and my cousin spent the week down there in a shack which was 12 by 16 with tar paper over rough sawn wood so we could have a turkey hunting experience and we did i mean we've we it, it was the greatest thing because here's a woman with two teenage boys showing us how to hunt and so i have a little bit you know, background with, with turkey hunting very early on in the state of Missouri. And if I got time, I'll tell you that first hunt, how it turned out. Cause it's, you, you, you just have to hold on your side because it just hurts so much to laugh. But at any rate, Chad Grosnickel, I think he was the sheriff. He was the something else here in Adair County. And he, and a couple guys said, look, MDC, if you get some of them turkeys down there and them Shannon, Carter, Iron counties and bring some up here. We'll make a pledge that we'll take care of them for you. And there was a lot of dialogue that went back and forth. And finally, I think Shag was able to get 40,000 acres commitments from landowners if they would bring them birds up here in this county. But the departments seemed to think that there might be too much open ground for them because they're used to all woods. Well, they yielded Brought twenty five birds, and the first winter was like it is out there now. Oh, they were just shaking in their boots. John Grossnickel told me about his dad. He said that they had put corn out, and the turkeys walked over, didn't know what it was, <laughs> and would not eat it. And he said that it really got them scared because they wanted to. This was their only chance to get birds, and and twenty five birds was a lot of birds to come out of our dwindling population down in those counties. So they went and I think they got them some ground wheat or something. And they kind of knew what that kind of thing was, but yellow corn, they were, they wouldn't eat it. And so anyway, to make a long story short, they put them here in the county and we had a tremendous success. Once we got them past that first, first um, winter, you got to realize that back then, in the early 70s, coons were going for almost 40 bucks a piece. You had possums going for seven and a half, and you had skunk going about likewise. So you had everybody and their brother out trapping, so there was no predators, no forbearers, And these turkeys exponentially procreated and successfully uh, fledged 10 to 12 turkey every year to the point where when we bought this farm in 92, 93, there was 300. I have a photograph of 300 turkeys down there in the bottom. You can count every single one of them. (laughs) And that's where the Turkey Federation, Wild Turkey Federation, worked at capturing some of this success story and traded them to other states like Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and So this was a good seed stock, and we also used them here to transfer within the state. But what we found was that the turkeys did very well in our prairies. Uh, Our open areas had a lot of native plants, uh, forbs that had a lot of insects, and that's important when those baby chicks hatch out. And so the turkeys had the food. Even though the '80s was one of the roughest, toughest times for Northeast Missouri, it was the drought years. But the turkeys went to the riparian ways, and that's where they set up shop for their nest. Well, back then there was no problems with fur bearers. There was not a coyote or or coon, like I said, because you could make a half a week's wages, you know, in a couple of days if if you got several coons. So. Th- There was nothing in American restoration quite as successful as what took place here in Adair County with turkeys. It it just goes to show you that, you know, with individuals dreaming big and daring to fail, using wisdom to try to persuade and appeal to the reasoning that we can do this, and how they are able to improve upon that. Yeah, the turkeys have, you know, when there was, what affected the turkeys was a social event in in Adair County. The social event that that affected the turkeys were that you had PETA and several other organizations squirting ketchup on people anywheres in the country, whether they're in airports, they're in malls with ketchup, if they were wearing furs. Well, the, the The furs went from forty dollars down to a dollar, and so all of a sudden, all of the fur bears started using our riparian ways, and they weren 't killing our turkeys, but they were eating the eggs i believe and But our turkeys have adapted, and they 've moved away from the those travel lanes along our riparian ways, and now they're nesting up into the prairies and the uh, some of the um, areas not accessible quite as much for the fur bears, but it, it's amazing how social change and how much it affects conservation. Social changes is that we, we have, like at one time here in Adair County, we had Harriet Beard working with a committee there in, in Kirksville. And they were printing up brochures, sending them all across the United States as Kirksville, wild turkey capital of, I mean, uh, turkey capital of the world, <laughs> bringing in people from all over hunting. Now that affected our area immensely because it brought in hunters from everywhere. Kirksville, wild turkey capital of the world. And that, and, and that's a result of a couple people Okay, so in in um kind of building on maybe the next one you do, but you look at this guy like Rudy Raceline with raceline alternative energy, one man, and you know there's so much hope and expectation that what he's going to bring to changing our planet to a positive effect and uh so i'm I'm hopeful of these young guys and yourself and what where you're taking this, and uh, I feel real positive, I really do.
0: Well, we're a little bit over our time. Zach, is there anything you wanted to talk about with the co-ops before we close this down?
1: I don't really see
2: much more to cover other than if you guys, any of the listeners are interested in starting a co-op, I highly encourage it. And Quality Deer Management Association, they have two guys in the state of Missouri, Alex Foster, and then they just hired a new one, and I'm not sure his name. Reach out to these guys, and I highly encourage you to start a co-op in your own area. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me.
0: Well, thanks for what you're doing and being a a young leader amongst conservationists, and you're doing a great job with that. And I think I'll speak for Zach and, and myself. Frank, we're just thankful for you, thankful for your leadership and your friendship and all you've done over the years, not only for the area, but personally for me as an individual, and I know many other people feel that same way. So, Well, thank you. I'm humbled by that. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot.